really need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're gonna have some real healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Welcome back to another episode of Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. With me today to talk leadership and activism is author Dorian Withrow Jr. Dorian, thank you for being with us today. I appreciate you for having me. You've written a self-help book called Thoughts of Creatively King, 114 Realities. It's not just your regular self-help book. What's the reason behind the title? Um, Thoughts of Creativity King, 114 Realities, it's, it's my little masterpiece. You know, it, it's, um, it's composed of poetry, like free verse, uh, haiku, Japanese poems, um, short stories, and illustrations of some of those free verse. It's, um, it's made up of my life, philosophy, and I wanted to put lessons into it to help people and let them know that they're not alone. What inspired you to want to write a book to help inspire others? I got the idea from my mentor. I um, I met with him slightly before college. It was, a, it was a good meeting. I was passing some ideas back and forth on what I wanted to do. And we ultimately came, he gave me three topics to kind of focus on. And um, he told me, what are your likes, your passions, and your purpose? And I was, uh, I didn't have a good answer for him. Long story short, I left, and I got the idea. It clicked to me. I was, I could write a book. And be like before I met with him in my uh, last two years of high school, I've been writing poetry. People loved it. And it. I gravitated towards it. I, I did more on my own, and... By the time that idea came, I had a, a set of poems already laid out ahead of me, and I just added to it. And this was your mentor in high school? He was a mentor outside of school. I met him uh, when I was in a Jack and Jill program, Jack and Jill of America. I met um His name is Najee. He's a owner of Phoenix Innovation. And, um, yeah, he's he's a great guy. I released the book, and I... I talked to him and I praised him and I was I was so grateful for their help and for him talking to me and give, giving me the idea, giving helping me produce the ideas I needed to make the book happen. And you include uh, several short stories from your life in the book. Can you can you give me an example of one of these uh, short stories? Yeah. Um, so I talked about the time I went to my great grandmother's house. I came to rake some leaves and. I was I was like I can I can do it on my own, and um, I didn't want her to help, so I'm just out there raking. I got some classwork to do, and I had a couple other things to do that day. But I wanted to take time out to help her. So I'm raking, and she 
takes a step outside the door and she um, she yells, you want any help? You're going to be here all, all day. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I got it. I was like, this, this woman's almost 90. I'm like, what? You know, no. <laughs> so, How old were you? Um, I was 21 at the time, I think. So I'm, I'm raking, and then she comes back out, and uh, I'm like, hey, she, she said, no, let me help you because you're going to be out here all day. You got other stuff to do. And I was like, I'm like, all right, I got it. And then um, as, I'm, as I'm raking and we're getting up the leaves, I I was tearing up a bit because I'm like, well, I'm here to help her and I feel like she shouldn't have to do this. My little pride, you know. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, you know, I, I got this. I, I can do it on my own. I don't need help from my great-grandmother. And um, so I, I we put the bags in and we set them off to the side. We had them in a row. I had set off the first three bags, and as I'm I'm looking at those first three bags, I, I see that those first three bags they were smaller, and it took me a lot more time to put those three bags in that row. And with her help, I saw that the bags were bigger, and the job that it got done a lot faster. So there there's a few lessons in that. So you know. Put your pride to the side. Um, teamwork, the, teamwork makes the dream work. Yes, yes. <laughs> and the results are much greater and a lot faster. So that's the beauty of like the short stories. That's wonderful. You also uh, said you've got, you know, assorted poetry, haikus in your book. Uh, what got you into that? Um, free verse poetry, high school. So I did that junior, senior year, even my at, sophomore year. At Amherst High School? Yeah. With Gordon Crock? No, I had uh, Miss Godino. Ah, well, shout out to I'm, both of them. Tiger Pride. Yeah, I met with um, Miss Godino yesterday. Oh, excellent. I wanted to talk to them about the book and get some things going with it. Um, so haikus came up. I was playing a game, or I was watching a gameplay of a game called Sagiro, or it was like the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there was haikus presented in the in the game, and I was like, I was put to awe by it because I never heard of these like type this type of poetry, and I I was like I did a little bit of research on like what its structure is and some examples, and I was like, well, I could do this, so I I, I did some of my own, and I was like, I'll, I'll slide this over to the book, and that's kind of how the short stories came to be, and like discovery and like the book kind of developed over time. So we were at a fatherhoods conference um, through Breaking Barriers, and we were panelists because he wanted to showcase the people who did the podcast. And we we talked about examples of which fatherhood would have helped, and that's how like I I talked about that short story, and I was like, people liked it. So I, I why don't I write these down and add this also into the work I have. What's the process like in writing a book? Lots of editing and rewrites. Um, how long did it take you from when you, you said, I'm going to write a book, to it actually being published? My goal to publish a book was 
by the end of college, slightly before, or slightly after. And um, I got the idea to write a book uh, like the summer before freshman year started. It would have been like June. And I published it, not like a full circle kind of thing, but June of 2022. So by 2020, 2018, summer of that, summer of 2022, it took um, about four years. And the process, it, it was a lengthy one, a lot of learning, but I had a great mentor. So I published a book before this one. I had a book published before this one. It was um, Speak, Young Brown People Speak, We Are Listening. It is a book composed of a compilation of work from people all over the country, young people like myself. And they had their input, like illustrations, short stories, poems, essays. And it, it's great. And the woman that published it was Roberta Lampkins. Roberta Lampkins. She, I met with her, and we discussed the book virtually talked about some things and I was like I, this opportunity is amazing because she can help me mm-hmm. I talked to her I discussed like I, I wanted to produce a book I didn't know how to get it done mm-hmm. I didn't I just I didn't know anything I just knew I was typing and then like I, was, <laughs> I had this goal right and um, I feel like that's for a lot of people long story short she helps me published in June and now I have a consulting company surrounded around helping people become authors by giving them that information that they needed to give them the information that they need to produce a book. And that was actually going to be my next pre- uh, yeah. question. What words of wisdom can you impart on prospective authors about writing a book? Um, network. Be persistent in your craft. And um, seek help. Seek help. Find that connection. And just for for our listeners, where can folks find your book, your books? Um, so the one I co-authored, Speak, Young Brown People Speak, We Are Listening. You can just search that. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble's, Target, Walmart. My book, Thoughts of Creativity King, 114 Realities. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble's. I'm working on expanding that. But um, it's also available on my website, dswjr.com, and I can um, get that to you personally. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. Thomas O'Neill White here with author Dorian Withrow Jr. Dorian, you are actively involved with the Breaking Barriers program, uh, mentoring boys and young men of color. Uh, we've had a few other mentors on, including Malik Stubbs last week. How did you get, get involved with that program? Um, my mother brought it to my attention, and um, she had me apply, and I, I sort of went along with that. And it's been very fruitful. So, we got it. Shout out to Tommy McClam and Daniel Robertson. Uh, this is your third warning. Come on the show, please. <laughs> yeah, they they um they're awesome. Um, so mentoring for me in the program, it's by leading by example, the things I do. And also giving them words of wisdom as needed, corrections as needed, and um, yeah, acting as a, I wouldn't say a guide, but a, a sort of path that can be taken, you know. Talk to me about 
this trip to Baltimore? I mean, uh, Malik touched on it last week. Um, can you get a little bit more in depth with that? Yeah, so we, we went to Baltimore Tuesday to Saturday. We went to a Cities United Conference, and it was great. I loved um, the energy that all the young guys and young ladies had. They had a lot to offer. They're doing amazing things, and I'm so proud of them. I'm proud of the connections I've made, and uh, I want to use those. And they, um, and I, I made some big connections, so I want to use them for the podcast we're doing for Breaking Barriers. It's another aspect of it. We did um. We did a lot, a lot of sightseeing. It's a beautiful city, and it, there's a lot to do there. I wish I got more to go out. There's a comic con. There was a, I think there was like a concert one night that we went, and um, yeah, plenty of places to eat, activities to go to. It's a very nice mall outside of Baltimore. I think it was like started with an H. It was like a, <laughs> I forget. And what about this, uh, this? I don't know if it's a chance meeting, but um, you you came into contact with uh, Los Angeles Clippers owner and former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer. Well, I, I didn't come into contact with him, but I got the chance to hear from him on stage regarding uh, activism and social justice in his lane and what he's doing with that. And um, I, I actually didn't know that was him. Somebody brought it to my attention after. But um, it's good to see that these people that are doing very well in society are, you know, coming to a place where they can, where they will interact and seeking to help, you know, people that are struggling in the social justice issues, get involved in activism. From your point of view, you work so much through breaking barriers and boys, young men and young men of color. What are these what do these young men need and has that changed at all post 514 I don't think it changed much it uh they need guidance and more positive role models to observe now when we talk about what what um young men need it's it's a strong mental shift of from what their harsh environments impose on them, we need to make the mental shift into what more um, with the the environments that are conducive to progress, mm-hmm. and environments that are healthier, and we I think that is the key. Like the big the thing that locks the door is that mental shift for them to become the best selves and help others. Changing the narrative, which is yeah. something they talk about all the time. Strongly. Yeah. You were featured in NBC News and USA Today. Can you talk a little bit about both of those things? Yeah, I'm still waiting on the video and uh, articles to come out about that, but it was a great experience. And um, shot some videos. You're going to love it. NBC, we had, a, we had a surprise session. And New York and USA Today, we had... A, it's going to be a lot of people on it, and it's going to be great videos and great input from us regarding Buffalo and other youth talking about their cities. With the USA Today story, what did they have you do? Uh, we discussed about 514 and um, 
what can be done to help improve the aftermath, improve the way we look at food deserts, improve the way we look at um, the troubles in our city. And um, it, it was a beautiful time, and I think that great things will come from it. Were there specific ideas that came from that conversation about what to do, anything concrete? I would say my input from it, it was attacking the food deserts where, where the fluid supply is, um, getting the farmers more active and more um, inclusive into the schools and the inner cities, and also speaking on the image of a rough area. I would, you know, it's not all bad, but I'm not giving all the bells and whistles either, mm-hmm. you know. So speaking on the narrative and changing some, speaking on some things that can be changed about our food supply within, you know, the dis- disparities in the neighborhoods. Have you shopped at that Tops? Not at that one in particular, but for the podcast I do, I'm in that area. And uh, for the breaking barriers, we're we're in that area, so we we do a lot of work there. And the community was was very powerful because I saw a lot of people come together, and a lot of people put in a lot of work to help each other. And that kind of thing, we we need that all the time, you know, not just when tragedy happens, but as a community, I saw the interconnectedness and the unity between people and and. In other areas outside of food, I feel like in schools and, you know, um, safety concerning the city, that has to be much stronger and just like that greater. Mm-hmm. Did you did you grow up in a, a social justice minded household? Yeah, I, I attribute that to my mother. So it was a lot of learning about my history and about how the world, like that global awareness, she instilled that. And through the variety of um, programs she put me in, one being Jack and Jill America and Breaking Barriers, um, I had the opportunity to like develop a mind for what can be changed, how to approach it, and maybe some necessary steps to take so that we can reach the goals that we need to so that Society is a safer safer and happier place. You are listening to Buffalo What's Next. Thomas O'Neill White here with author Dorian Withrow Jr. You also minored in philosophy in college. Do you apply that within breaking barriers? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, I apply it all the time. So with um, my philosophy minor, I've, I've had the honor of being bestowed on Phi Sigma Tau, which is Philosophical Honor Society, and the St. Thomas Aquinas Award for Philosophical Excellence or Exceptional Achievement Interest in Philosophy. And um, I've had the pleasure of, like, learning by great people, but I apply it to breaking barriers through my words of wisdom I give to the young guys, and I put it through my, um, my book as well. I reshape the lessons I get in class and from the literature I read and the work I write. And I apply it to myself, put it through my own eyes and give it and the message that I feel would retain through others better. 
and um, people would receive much clearer because, you know, not a lot of people will. Yeah, you can't just quote uh, Socrates or uh, Marcus Aurelius. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, And you are also a a first-degree martial arts black belt that that's got to take a lot of discipline um again like just with like philosophy do you apply that um do you apply what you learn through the martial arts towards everyday life yeah um i'm talking about this in my next book actually so what martial arts teaches us teaches me i'll speak for myself um mistakes will be made they'll always be made and we can do nothing but constantly improve them every day and make sure that we refine what we're working on. There's always a, a goal that we're constantly trying to reach. And um, I apply that throughout my life. Like, you know, we, we all make mistakes, we trip up, but it's part of the process. And no matter how high you get, there will always be mistakes. No matter how old you get, there will always be mistakes. How much money you get, there will always be mistakes. So um, I apply that in my everyday, and um, I hope I can showcase that through my next piece of literature and through my example. And how long have you been practicing martial arts? Three years. Three, three years. years? A little over that. But yeah, three and years. Uh, what discipline? ITF Taekwondo. So there's, there's like two forms, right? Mm-hmm. So there's WTF, ITF, there's ITF and WTF. And um, WTF is like the stuff you see on the Olympics. Mm-hmm. ITF is the more of um, more punching involved and elbows and all that stuff. And you mentioned you are working on a new book. Yeah. Tell us about that. So it's, um, the title is... Wisdom, 45 Advice. And it's um, it's another self-help book, less poetry-based, but more essay-based, with po- poetic elements involved. I'm working with an illustrator right now. And I popped that over to her and um, prepared for the work, and she'll get more exposure for that. And, um, and with all my work, I love to promote people. I love to give people that opportunity to showcase their work and um, hopefully gain access to more opportunity. So um, like maybe if there's a local artist around who are interested in um, getting their illustrations put in my book, get some of the manuscript, pay for it, and um, get you involved. But that book, it's it's um, it's it's going to be even better than the last one. It's it's um, the information, the weight of the information, and how it relates to me, it tells my story, but also it makes it relatable to others in that way as well. Do you have a uh, planned release date for it? Or is it still... I, I can't give you a hot date, but I'm, I'm thinking... Yeah. Um, I'm anticipating December, if not January. So it's, okay, it's on so the tail soon. end. It's always coming. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Um, we've got a few minutes left. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question. It's very broad, but I try to ask uh, all my guests this question. From your vantage point, what does Buffalo need? 
Buffalo needs the people already in it to really get involved in the things that trouble us. So um, schooling is one particular issue. I think that parents, it's got to be a heavier involvement in the education of the children. If not them in particular, find somebody that'll be the... The mentor. Yes. Guide, person that'll assist them whenever needed. Find the resources you got to use, breaking barriers. Um, You know, find the resources and guides and push for safety in our communities. Attend the town hall meetings. Attend, you know, your social media posts. Tackle the council members. Get at the mayor. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot of times that the resources are here. It's just a matter of getting them to the people who need them the most. How do we how do we do that? Is that through social media? Is that through programs that maybe can be on TV, maybe radio? How 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 does that work? We we have to raise voices. I'm with Dr. Cornell West on this one. So, you know, it's raising your voice, being heard, that parhesia, that you know, the frank speech, the unapologetic speech, but you know, discussing the issues, not glancing over it, not sugarcoating what's going on, and really combating the people that need to be talked to. Like, all right, we have the access to these people. Let's talk to them, really convince them, get evidence, and push for where certain dollars need to go and systems need to be implemented so we get to the place we ideally desire. So really working with that. This is Buffalo What's Next, our daily discussion on topics of race and equity following the May 14th mass shooting at Tops. I want to thank author Dorian Ritho Jr. for being with us today. Coming up next, Dave Debo talks with UB historian Victoria Walcott on why the fight for civil rights is not over. This is Buffalo, Toronto Public Media. To recognize Veterans Day and Native American Heritage Month, Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and the Buffalo History Museum invite you to a screening of the WNED PBS original production, The Warrior Tradition. A lot of people ask, why did you join the white man's war? This is our home. This has always been our home. And part of the commitment to protecting and defending your home led to military service. Join us on November 9th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Buffalo History Museum for this special screening. Register at wned.org events. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Canadian Rockies by Rail. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome aboard the Rocky Mountaineer. See that? We like to talk about trying to create life-changing experiences. Canadian Rockies by Rail, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station.
And good morning. This is Dave Debo. Today, for the balance of the program, we'll be talking with Professor Victoria Walcott. She's at the University of Buffalo Department of History. She's written an interesting article lately called White Violence in Black Buffalo. She's also working on a book that's coming out soon called Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement. One of the things that I want to get to, Victoria, thanks for being here, by the way, is uh, the, the concept of how long the civil rights movement has been. I think a lot of people think of uh, perhaps the 60s and then it was done. We'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, the, the premise that I think sets off most of our discussion, uh, you wrote the, the article recently, White Violence and Black Buffalo. And at the time of the top shooting, there were a lot of people saying that the shooter isn't from here, that we don't really have a problem. He came in from a different area. You push back against that as a historian and say that there is a, a, a legacy, really, of black uh, violence against black Buffalonians. Yes, and first of all, thank you very much for the invitation today to speak about these important issues. In that piece, I really was trying to think about the kind of hidden violence um, that exists in many of our urban landscapes, uh, both overt white violence, which we often forget about in the past when people think about things like race riots, for example. They often think about the racial uprisings of the 1960s. But there are significant numbers of urban race riots which involve white mobs actually attacking black communities, um, including to some extent here in Buffalo. And then also the sort of structural violence of urban renewal, public housing, highway building, which we've been talking a lot about l mm. lately here um, in the city, and the kind of destruction that that creates uh, in black communities and underserved communities. So when you say violence, you don't automatically mean uh, fire hoses and dogs and Bull Connor like in the South. You're talking about the sort of systemic things that we've discussed here on this program. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there have been issues around police brutality in the city um, and some of those other kinds of more overt forms of violence, but absolutely the sort of structural issues of things like, for example, the lack of public transportation, um, the dilapidated uh, sidewalks and streets on the east side, the lack of trees and the kind of health consequences of that. All of those things together have enormous health consequences, um, economic consequences for the community. How are you justified? And, and this is more of a devil's advocate question. I don't mean it uh, as nastily as it was about to sound as I put it together in my head. How do you justify calling that violence? Because when I think of violence, I don't necessarily think of a lack of trees or a lack of sidewalks. Well, there was a case a few years ago in which a young African-American mother um, carrying her baby in a stroller had to go onto the street on the east side because the sidewalk was destroyed in that area. And she was hit by an SUV and her baby died. So there are actual physical consequences mm. to this infrastructure. Um, the Cynthia Wiggins case, some people might be familiar. Yeah, is public another. transit lines that exactly. did not run completely to her job at the Galleria Mall. So she had to cross all of Walden Avenue and it was struck. Exactly, and died. So so those are some examples. There are these direct consequences. You also have, and this to me was another good reason to have you in, you have an interesting story that you tell about 1956 and the Canadiana. In the minds of many Buffalonians, the Crystal Beach Boat, the Canadiana, I think is set up on a shelf and it's romanticized as this beautiful, wonderful time when people would get on the boat and would take them to the theme park over in Fort Erie and bring them back, and all was sweetness and light and, and really a golden moment. 
And whenever I hear about the Canadiana, granted I'm exaggerating a little bit for the sake of the discussion, I think of that wonderful golden time. You have a counterpoint to it that I don't think has been discussed a lot. That's right. And I don't think you're exaggerating about the nostalgia. I think the nostalgia in Buffalo about the Crystal Beach Park, which was an amazing amusement park, is profound. But this particular incident is not well remembered. This is in 1956. Memorial Day. Memorial Day. And this is in a moment when you have a massive increase in the African-American population in the city. In the 1950s, the black population increased over 90 percent in the city of Buffalo. There's an enormous amount of turmoil in the city as a result of urban renewal, uh, white flight. So there are lots of populations moving around, which led to a lot of ethnic and racial conflict. So on the opening day in 1956, there were a lot of rumors flying around that there was these different youth gangs who were going to fight on Crystal Beach. So, so tensions were already high. Uh, so the large group of teenagers get on the Canadiana, both black and white. Um, and really, this large number of black teenagers had never been seen on the Canadiana before, but this was a result of the migration. They get to the Crystal Beach and immediately fights begin to break out. Uh, there's a lot of racial epithets and taunting of the black teenagers on the part of some white sailors and some sort of white toughs, basically, youth gangs. And the violence continues in the park. And then on the boat ride home, there's basically scuffles, teenagers fighting each other. Um, nobody is seriously injured. It's not the kind of race riot that we would think about, say, in 1968 or something like that. But it gets an enormous amount of publicity. And what happens is that Crystal Beach actually stops running the Canadiana after 1956 because of this racial conflict. Um, and cities all through the South actually ran headline news sto stories about this, saying basically this is what happens when you have integration. And it, up until that point, uh, Buffalo, you write, had, had prided itself as being the city of good neighbors, uh, a city that did not necessarily experience major racial uprising. The reason they have that, that tagline of the city of good neighbors is exactly because uh, it did not experience, the city of Buffalo did not experience the level of racial violence that cities like Detroit in 1943 or Chicago in 1919 experienced. So the, the end of the Canadiana was directly related to racial violence? Yes. And this is a common pattern in amusement parks throughout the country. These older streetcar parks or ferry parks throughout the country, one of the first things they do when they have this kind of conflict as African-Americans begin to challenge segregated practices is to cut off public transportation. Um, and of course, that does not only cut off African-American access if they don't have access to automobiles, but also working class whites and immigrants as well who don't have access to automobiles. That's interesting to me because, again, the, the, the conventional wisdom is completely different from that. Do you think that a majority white society puts forth narratives? It does. And one of the major narratives of the 20th century around segregation, which your listeners should keep in mind is a northern phenomenon, not just a southern phenomenon, is that segregation becomes violence prevention. So that any time you have conflict um, in these public accommodations and other spaces, that is used to justify segregation as, again, kind of violence prevention or riot prevention. And it reinforces the, the negative racial stereotype that the presence of African-Americans somehow will lead to violence, even though the instigators of that violence are the young white men, teenagers who are beating up these folks, right? Let's fast forward to 2020. Historians look at the past, but I want to look at the present a little bit. 
so many people have argued that Peyton Gendron was able to do what he did because the East Side had so much disinvestment, because the East Side was so segregated. Do the roots of segregation that you're talking about, 56, 60, civil rights era, explain the kind of segregation that we have on the east side in Buffalo continuing in 2022? I think it definitely does. I mean, I think so, so even after the passage of a series of laws in the 60s, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the important 1968 housing law, you know, outlawing racial discrimination in housing, but there is a long legacy in the many decades after that because of structural issues, um, because of some of these stereotypes that I've been talking about, where there's still resistance to racial integration in housing, for example, even today uh, in the Buffalo metropolitan area, lack of public transportation. So that segregation just gets amplified as the decades go on. Is it still a fear of violence? Are, are we... Forgive me for just putting it so bluntly. Are we that racist? Do we really think that if I, as a white guy, I'm going to go over on the east side, I'm going to get beat up? There might be some individuals who have that kind of perspective, but I think it's a broader cultural phenomenon uh, in which this is the sort of situation where, you know, the the, the black a bird watcher in Central Park where the white woman calls the police on him, right? This sort of this notion of somebody who doesn't belong in a particular kind of space is maybe inherently going to create some sort of trouble. So I'm not suggesting that all white people think that, um, but I am suggesting that that is an ongoing kind of phenomenon. Is it a justification for the current, not that there is, not that there is a justification for segregation, but is it a, a rationale for the current segregation or is that just a, a byproduct of historical patterns? People live where they live because of what happened in the 50s and 60s, and redlining and all that, and it just continues to roll downhill. Well, I think challenging this association of safety with segregation is one of the most important um, sort of movements or goals that we should have as a society. Uh, that has to be taken apart. We live or we should be living in a multiracial democracy, and that multiracial democracy should be one in which um, African-Americans, others, immigrants, refugees are living side by side, working side by side, recreating side by side as well. And a multiracial democracy is not going to work unless we can go past those barriers. Why is it that that doesn't exist in Buffalo? I've heard in previous interviews on this program Jay Moran, for example, was talking with Madison Carter, former reporter from Channel 7, who is now ensconced in Atlanta. And others have talked about Atlanta, too, how it is so diverse and yet so unsegregated, so integrated, that in some cities, the mixing occurs. Why not here? Atlanta is a much more economically prosperous city than the city of Buffalo. It did not experience the level of deindustrialization, the devastating impact of deindustrialization that Buffalo experienced uh, in the post-war period. That is a huge reason why. Um, so there, there is in a city like Atlanta, there is a black upper class, a black middle class, mm -hmm. uh, black poverty. Here in Buffalo, there is less striations. I think that's somewhat true. I mean, I think that there there is certainly class differences within the African-American community, but there isn't that really powerful um, kind of economic driver that you see in a city like Atlanta. Okay. And uh, what keeps people from going to the east side today? Is it still that fear of violence? Uh, I think we can all, of a certain age, recall times perhaps when our parents— uh, would drive through certain parts of the neighborhood 
uh, children in the back seat, and you'd hear them go click and lock the doors because, oh, my, we're in a black neighborhood now. Um, that's, that's at least to my experience common, and I, I'm thinking that it's too common to a lot of other folk. Does that sort of fear still exist today? There's definitely a kind of suburban-urban divide in the metropolitan region of Buffalo uh, that you see, you know, in all sorts of ways. I mean, I do think that there's many activists on the east side of Buffalo and entrepreneurs on the east side of Buffalo who are trying to change this. Um, And I have seen, you know, more institutions, places like the Eugene Debs Hall, certainly the Central Terminal, other kinds of spaces uh, on the east side that are more multiracial. So development is part of it. I talked to someone once about the Freedom Wall. On the east side, obviously, where it has some cultural relevance. And I said, why is that not on Canal Side, where people would have a broader audience to educate? And this person said, first of all, it belongs on the east side. And secondly, why should Canal Side have everything? Um, The idea that if I want to enjoy myself on the east side, there has to be an incentive. I want to go see maybe the Freedom Wall. Or I want to have that great steak sandwich. Um, the, the, does there need to be more things that draw more white people over into the east side? I mean, I think that should be a goal. But I think the overall goal, the most significant goal, is to make the east side work for the people who live there, um, to make it safe for the people who live there, to make sure that they have fresh food, um, that they have the resources they need to thrive. And I think out of that might become a more kind of multiracial community, but that that shouldn't be the primary goal. Victoria Walcott is here. She's a professor of history at the University of Buffalo, author of the forthcoming book, Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement. That last part of the subtitle is intriguing to me, the long civil rights movement. Uh, the introduction to your book opens with a uh, an epigram from Martin Luther King Jr. We want freedom now. We do not want freedom fed to us in teaspoons over another 150 years. 60 years later, are we still getting teaspoons? We are still getting teaspoons. There has been progress. But what I tried to do with this book, and I should say the book is actually out already. So oh, we, I thought it was still in. No, okay. it's, it's, it's out. It's there. Um, <laughs> uh, but is what King did and, and many other really progressive thinkers, in the particularly in the 1930s and 40s, um, really developed is a way of thinking, a kind of utopian way of thinking, of envisioning the future they wanted to see and then living that future in the here and now. So the use of nonviolent direct action where you you know do not wait for the Civil Rights Act to be passed before you enter into a restaurant that's segregated or an amusement park that's segregated, you go and you sit down at that business you know in the here and now and force a kind of reckoning. Um, and that's very much what, what King was calling for and many others as well. They were dreamers. Absolutely. And I think utopian dreaming is a really important uh, part of a social movement to try to envision a future that's more equitable, um, that is more equitable you know, across racial class lines as well. All right. When we return, I want to talk more about utopia, uh, the idea of utopianism as a social movement and what that means in terms of cooperatives and collectives. Uh, Victoria Walcott is here. She's a historian at UB, a professor there. More with her after this. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. The popular WNED PBS Our Town series is now on YouTube. 
explore our region's towns through the eyes of community members who captured them on video beginning in 2003. Debuting this week is Our Town Markham, featuring the founding families, beautiful Main Street, places of worship, and much more. Head to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel to watch and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of Our Town. WBFO is your home for trusted news about your community. And WBFO The Bridge connects music and community. Hear local music from bands like Farrell from Buffalo, Tedesco Knows Best from Niagara Falls, and Stress Dolls from Buffalo every day on WBFO The Bridge. Listen at WBFO 88.7 HD2 or WNED 94.5 HD2 or stream it from WBFOTheBridge.org or the WBFO The Bridge mobile app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. We are talking with Victoria Walcott. She's a University at Buffalo history professor, historian. I think we can use either title. She's also an author. The recently released book, Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement. Now, this to me is, is fascinating because I think when people think of the civil rights movement, they, they think of Dr. King, certainly. But they don't necessarily think of the historical utopian movement that started long before that. Let's let's go back to to early days, as it were, um, and and lay some of that groundwork. Talk about the the social utopian movement. So this really does date back to the certainly the early nineteenth century, where you have you know intellectuals like and social reformers like Robert Owen and others who are experimenting. They're, they're creating utopian socialist communities. Um, and African-Americans after emancipation find some of these ideas that were developed in the 19th century enormously helpful in trying to kind of rebuild their communities. Uh, one in particular is the idea of the cooperative. Uh, cooperatives are enormously beneficial for low-income communities, communities with fewer resources, because you can kind of you know, pull together the resources that you have to build uh, wealth. Um, and that happens in the post-emancipation period in all black communities in places like uh, Kansas and Oklahoma, as well as Mississippi. Um, and it also happens in cities like the city of Buffalo. Um, and I should say that W.E.B. Du Bois and many other really prominent African-American figures were, were huge proponents of cooperatives. So here in Buffalo, just to tell that story briefly, there was a physician, um, Ezekiel Nelson was his name, African-American physician. And I should say that the African-American community in the early 20th century in Buffalo was very well educated and, and relatively um, prosperous. Uh, so he, in 1928, opened up this Buffalo Cooperative Economic Society, which lasted for about three decades. They had an apartment mm. building. They had a grocery store. Um, they had a number of different businesses. And, and they really thrived until the late 50s when, again, some of the uh, destructive nature of urban renewal and other processes brought it down. And if you're someone who is not believing that capitalism is serving you, the idea of cooperative ownership of the means of production, cooperative ownership, becomes a vastly appealing thing and, and generates this whole utopian movement. Yeah. So, and that's why 
these cooperatives were particularly popular um, in the 1930s during the Great Depression, when capitalism was definitely not serving people well. Uh, you find them in rural areas, you find them in urban areas as well. And they really do become a kind of lifeline for these communities. So it's a sort of one piece of a utopian vision, but I think it's a particularly interesting one, and one that we see now taken up by Buffalonians on the east side, actually. Exactly. These days, the African Heritage Food Co-op is talking about cooperative ownership, um, the idea that, that Topps Market or Wegmans or anyone else that comes in would be a corporate owner to perhaps solve the food desert problem, but not solve it with a local solution owned by people from the community. Cooperativism is rising. Right. And cooperativism can be a broader metaphor. And that's certainly many of the activists uh, who worked on these movements talked about cooperatives as also sort of being a mindset that you they talked about. They would use the term brotherhood, but that would include women. Right. The sort of equality of people, uh, the idea of working together in a cooperative. Everybody has equal power, equal vote in that cooperative. And that's what they wanted to see in the broader society. So many of these communities were actually run as cooperatives as well. So it, it is definitely a kind of way to address um, some of the worst aspects of capitalism, you know, without going fully uh, towards, say, the Communist Party. Does the current resurgence come after a period of dormancy? What happened that the cooperatives you spoke of earlier didn't continue to exist and thrive and, and, and give birth to the ones that we're talking about now? There was a period of dormancy, I would say, um, you know, coming out of this mid-century period. There were examples of black nationalist or black power movements uh, who did kind of go this economic um, direction as well. You see that with the Black Panther Party, for example, or even, you know, black nationalist bookstores are sometimes run as cooperatives. So you see that a bit in the 1970s, for example, in the black nationalist movement. But I think it's really being rediscovered now. I think it's part of an interest in kind of small-ass socialism um, that many young people who are progressives are, are really engaged in, and they're looking for to the past for some solutions going forward. But why did it die? I think it's complicated. Or go asleep, maybe. Because yeah. Because if, it, if, yeah. if it's being resurrected now, it was dormant for a while. Why, why did it sleep? Well, in the, in, in the post-war period, there was a period of relative prosperity. Um, and that something like cooperatives are particularly popular during periods of economic depression, which is why the 1930s was a period in which uh, they really come to the fore. So when you get into the post-war period, you know, you do have relative prosperity. There seems to be less of a need for this kind of economic organization. It's also the Cold War and the Red Scare. So, you know, it could be small s socialist, but it's still socialist. Um, so that's going to be something that's attacked as well. And there was a lot of skepticism of sort of utopian ideas in the Cold War era. Bring it full circle to the mayoral candidacy of <laughs> India Walton, who branded herself as a socialist. Right. I mean, so she's exactly the kind of young progressive sort of new thinker that I'm referring to when I talk about this interest in cooperatives, urban farming, um, also related to not only food scarcity, but climate change, these sort of interlocking issues that we have a number of, of you know, organizations in the city of Buffalo th that are involved in this. So you have the Partnership for the Public Good, uh, Push Buffalo. Again, you mentioned also the African Heritage Food Co-op. There's the Buffalo Freedom Gardens. I could go on. So there's a lot of that energy in the city right now. Push Buffalo, People United for Sustainable Housing. That right there is a kind of, and I don't mean in a bad way, but a socialist name. People United will never be defeated. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, and I think many of the people engaged in Push Buffalo probably um, identify as socialists. But again, not socialists in the sense of taking not over capitalists. Well, right, not taking over the means of production of the entire um, you know country. But this is a very long tradition in American history that we often forget, this tradition of communalism and cooperation at a smaller scale to help sustain communities. Even to some degree, and I'm thinking they might reject the label, but the West Side Bazaar. Yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, these sort of entrepreneurial entrepreneurial startups um, is another really interesting economic experiment, allowing recent immigrants and refugees um, who don't have very much capital to incubate what would later perhaps become a restaurant. This is that's a kind of tried and true, uh, and really fascinating and, and often quite successful way to address these issues. Do you think that this could spark a movement that changes politics? Um, India Walton didn't win. On the national scale, it seems as if the battle between the true progressives in the Democratic Party uh, is being lost and and the Democratic Party is more moderate. They always talk about, to some degree, uh, AOC notwithstanding, rejecting the far left. Similarly with the Republican Party rejecting the far right to some degree. Um, Do you think this rise of cooperatives, this this activist entrepreneurs, the, 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 the need for more cooperatives, will make for any sort of movement on the political realm? I think it already has. Really? I I think it already has. I think that the conversations that people are having about universal basic income, um, about the climate change issues around the the Green New Deal, the rise of labor organizations, including here in Buffalo with the Starbucks uh, unions, the Amazon unions, all of that has had already created real shifts in the political world. Um, you know, Joe Biden was, in fact, elected. Yeah. Uh, so, so of course, there's barriers and divisions and, and enormous barriers just in, in, in terms of, you know, redistricting, et cetera, um, in terms of how these midterm elections are going to go. But politics more generally has already become transformed by these social movements. What changed on May 14th? I think... One of the things that changed is the visibility of the East Side. I think the horrific tragedy and loss of life also meant that people outside of the East Side were able to see the community and wanted to see the community and think holistically about what they could do to assist the community to rebuild. So that issue of visibility, um, which historians are always very interested in, I think is is really, really significant in the aftermath. Do you think it'll matter? I do think I think it already has created change. Um, I think there's already been a lot of organizing. There's a lot of young people, you know, who are interested in things like Afrofuturism, these cooperatives that I've mentioned, who are really looking towards a very different kind of future. Part of the reason why I asked, and I've, I've asked this question of others on this program, too, a year before the top shooting, we had George Floyd and Derek Chauvin with the knee on the neck. And that was so visceral, and it was so broadly distributed. That video was in everyone's living room. It was right there. It was personal in their house. And yet, by and large, it didn't generate the kind of change that would prevent something like Tops from happening roughly a year later. I guess I'm not as pessimistic. Uh, The protests that summer after George Floyd's horrific murder had the largest number of white participants ever in America's history. 
Um, it, it dwar- I mean, it, the, the civil rights movement definitely had white participants in some of those marches. This was, you know, 10 times the number. And it wasn't just in big cities. It was in small towns. Uh, it led to institutional changes. Universities, including UB, really looked hard at what was happening uh, in their institutions. That is ongoing. So, yes, the protests, the giant, the giant marches may have died down, but that does not mean they didn't have real impact. And that kind of goes back to what you said earlier, the, the Martin Luther King quote about teaspoons rather than big change. If this change is going to happen, do you think it needs to be teaspoons, a drop at a time? I would encourage people to think the way that King thought um, and that many others in those civil rights, sort of mid-century civil rights organizations thought, which is to think about immediate change. And how do you make that immediate change happen? What is the most effective means of doing so? Nonviolent direct action was what they landed on, um, and it had a, an enormous impact on you know, American society, North and South. So that kind of call for immediate change, um, that impatience, which is, a, which is you know, the nature of utopian thinking, I think is significant. But what, what needs to happen now? Would, would a mass rally on the East Side matter? I think what needs to happen now is part of what is happening, which is that um, deference to the folks who live on the east side, to set their own priorities, to think about what they need to thrive. Is it free public transportation? Is it more bus lines? Is it planting more trees? Is it all of the above? Um, And to follow that lead, rather than trying to do some sort of big splashy project like just the central terminal and hope that that trickles down to the community, really being as comprehensive um, and bottom-up as possible. Once upon a time, the um, main thought for Buffalo's waterfront was a Bass Pro store. Silver bullets don't work, you say. Absolutely. And here I I follow the lead of my colleague at UB, Henry Lewis Taylor, who's done such enormously um, important work on this. And and he argues, and I agree with him, that you really need to have this sort of community organizing at the basis of any real urban change. And it has to be comprehensive. It has to be about health care. It has to be about infrastructure. It has to be about redevelopment of vacant lots and other kinds of vacant land. Um, And all those things have to happen together in conversation with the community. His The Harder We Run report even advocates for not necessarily a municipality, but some sort of, here's the word again, cooperative handling zoning, handling land use. The the phrase that I've heard a lot of people pick up is, uh, if it's about us but without us, it's not for us. That, that's a very powerful phrase. And I think this is the time for innovative thinking, which is why I appreciate his work, um, you know, thinking a bit out of the box. Things like zoning, you know, we, we had the green code, right? Things like zoning have enormous consequences for communities. And there, there are ways to use urban governance and urban planning to make real change. A question I probably shouldn't ask with less than a minute left. <laughs> In order to get the kind of change you've talked about, do we need political change? I think having allies in politics who are in power is is very, very significant. But there's lots of routes to get to political change. It's not just about electoral office. It's also just about organizing on the ground. All right. Victoria Walcott, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Professor Walcott is the author of Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement. She's also written on a website called Black Perspectives. The earlier article we mentioned is there. You can find out a lot more. Just just Google the name. 
We continue to have these discussions. We'll be back and do more of it tomorrow. That's our promise to you here at WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR stations. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for being with us. 